Show number 18 of I Read Comics, special Harlan Ellison edition. Kids, welcome to a special edition of I Read Comics. On today's show, <laughs> I sound like a, a game show host. Um, I have a special co-host today who is um, my wonderful friend, Catherine from Philly. And regular listeners will know that she and I both appeared over on Comic Geek Speak with the boys a couple of weeks ago. And I've mentioned her before. She's the one who wrote the wonderful um, Spider-Man fanfic that I love so much. And she and I are, are comic buddies, even though we live on opposite sides of the country. So today, as promised, we are going to talk about Harlan Ellison and specifically about A Boy and His Dog, because um, we both discovered that we liked this and thought it was interesting and, and did a little research so we can talk to you about it today. So um, why don't you say hello to the nice people at home, Catherine? <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs> we're doing this through the magic of Skype, and we're hoping that it all works out okay. Love Skype. So we did this. This was great. It was like only in the year 2005 could we do this with this technology, right? So we're doing it on Skype, which is really cool. Um, you got the DVD of the movie. Courtesy of the lovely Netflix five-day trial, yes. Right. Which I didn't even know it existed on DVD because the only version I ever saw was like the crappy version that they showed on TV. Um, right when Don Johnson was really popular, mm-hmm. the whole Miami Vice thing. And just a little caveat for the younger listeners, don't think Don Johnson Nash Bridges. Think Don Johnson <laughs> Sex machine in Miami Vice. Oh, it's, totally. it's a huge. I talked to somebody the other week. It was twenty-two years old and was like Nash Bridges. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's very makes me very sad. Yeah, well, well, we'll get to that part of it. We'll spend some time talking about that. So, so you got the DVD. You got it through Netflix, and then you sent it to me so I could watch it, which was totally cool. And I got the um, my copy of. Uh, one of Ellison's books, the collection called The Beast That Shouted Love at the Heart of the World. And I Xeroxed the story and I mailed it to you via snail mail. And then I, I got for both of us the um, com- the graphic novel version of it and sent you a copy through the mail. Which was awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And so this is just so cool that we were both able to get all these things and, and read them. And I'm, I'm kind of guessing that this is the first time anybody's like talked about all three of the versions at the same time. Or any of the versions, actually. It's really kind of an obscure... Aside from hearing uh, one or two references on Cinecast, a movie review podcast, I, I mean, I was astonished to hear anyone even had known about it when you had mentioned it on your podcast a few weeks ago. Maybe it was actually a few months ago. Um, I'm like, oh my God, there's someone else who's seen this movie. And I would had no idea at that time that there was a graphic novel based on it. Yeah, so, so this is great. I feel like we're getting at something new and interesting. And looking at it now, so the, the, the story was written... Let me check. I think it was 69. Yeah, so it was like 68, 69, and then the movie came out in 75. And this um, cartoon version of it, graphic novel, was 87. In the 80s. Yeah, yeah, late 80s. So it's kind of spanned a bunch of different decades, and now it's even 20 years after the graphic novel version of it came out. Um, 
and and you're right. I haven't seen a lot of discussion about it, except I was doing a little bit of internet research, and um, I came across a number of people who insist that both the story and the movie are really misogynistic. Um, I saw a lot of references to that too. Yeah, which which I disagree with, really. Um, and we can certainly talk about that because we haven't actually talked about this before. So you guys are getting this like live and direct <laughs> instead of canned. It's not canned at all. We have notes, no. but that's all that there is. Yeah. So um, before we start doing kind of the analysis, I think we should tell people what the plot is. And if you haven't read the story or seen the movie here, I'm going to tell you how it ends because that's important. <laughs> so, yeah, so like, I was wondering about the spoilers. We kind of have to. You have to, because otherwise yeah. it doesn't make any sense. So if you haven't either read it or watched it, stop the podcast now and go read the story and then come back and you can listen to it. Um, it's it's a post-apocalyptic story. It takes place in um, 2024, I think. And there's been some horrible, um, you know, fourth world war, third world war that's left most of the population dead and most of the cities really devastated. Like there's not much left. And the story is about a boy named Vic, who I think is supposed to be in the story. He's like 15, right? Very young. Yeah. And then in the movie, he's older. Don Johnson was like 25 or 26, I guess. When I they think made he was it. trying to play like 21, but yeah. definitely not supposed to be a teenager. I think that probably wouldn't be allowed very, you know, it would be a different type of movie mm-hmm. if it were a 15 year old. Right. So, so there's, there's one difference. Um, and he has a dog named blood and um blood is kind of this cute um looks like a rag mop dog and he's telepathic and there's an explanation for that um so he communicates with vic and they are just by themselves out in this landscape and they have to um fight for food and you know kind of survive by their wits and um vic always carries lots of ammunition with him he's got a rifle and a 45 and um there are still some kind of vestiges of civilization left, like one of the packs of kids that are out there run a movie theater, so they go and see movies once in a while, which is a little weird. Um, turns out that there are also societies that live underground in these sort of big metal tubes. So there are these enclosed communities, and, and down there it's all very orderly and neat, kind of a turn-of-the-century America um, and he ends up visiting one that's called uh, Topeka. So it's like Topeka, Kansas. And the reason he goes there is because he's lured there by a girl with the very unusual name of Quilla June, <laughs> which is such an off-the-wall name. <laughs> I think supposed to be just about as Topeka, Kansas, although actually <laughs> it's taking place in what's left of Phoenix. And when it comes to actually, if if you want to get a feeling for at least how the movie visualizes it, there's a lot of comparisons on the net to Mad Max. Mm-hmm. And some people have even said, oh, well, it's such a Mad Max ripoff. But in <laughs> fact, this was before that. So A Boy mm-hmm. and His Dog was 75 and Mad Max was 79. And I think the director of Mad Max was even very influenced by this particular yeah. movie and the take on the genre. Yeah. So it's very, very visually similar, at least what I had seen, especially in how the packs of people all look like they're little, you know, desert roving groups Mm -hmm. of of just wild old machinery that they've confiscated and running around on. So um, that part of it looked very familiar to me from my uh, Mel Gibson viewing days. Yep, definitely. Uh, And and other movies too. I mean, when people make post-apocalyptic science fiction movies, I think they all have started to take on that look where everything's Mm -hmm. like cobbled together. I haven't seen that horrible Kevin Costner movie where he plays the postman so but the pictures that i saw from it it looked like that (laughs) yeah just a little less desert but yeah pretty much similar (laughs) 
Same um, feeling. So he gets lured down there by this girl named Quilla June um, that he finds up roaming around in, in his world. And he, he finds her and he has sex with her and he follows her down there and... Um, turns out that they the people underground wanted him as part of a repopulation program but he doesn't like it and he decides to leave and he escapes through violent means and makes it back up to the surface um, where his dog blood is still waiting for him and the, the crucial part of the whole movie and the book and everything is that when he comes back up with Quilla June following him, um, he has to make a choice between who's going to live and die. Is he going to save his dog or is he going to live with Quilla June? And the punchline is that he kills Quilla June to feed his dog. The end. <laughs> <laughs> At least in the story and in the movie. Right. That's right. The end. That's, that's right. right. Um, so... It's and and the interesting thing is in the in the story. So I'm going to look at this. That whole thing takes place in the last one, two, three, four, like five paragraphs. It's not dwelled upon. It's not graphic. It's very much implied. Like you really have to read it two or three times before you figure out what happens. And it's the same thing in the movie too. Like if you're not really paying attention, you might even miss that that that's what happens. There's no blood. There's no gore. No, there's these little subtle things about him saying they didn't want anything to eat, and then the dog's wounds. The dog had been very wounded in their running to this to the underground where they where he then went underground, of mm-hmm. course, underground, and um, that the dog is bound. His wounds are bound with the pieces of dress mm-hmm. from the girl too, from coming up. So it is really very subtle, and just I think some of the dialogue leads you can then figure out what's. I mean, it's yeah. so surprising that this has happened but yeah yeah so um that that point to the story was the reason why when it was published i think people were somewhat shocked by it that you know somebody put that in a story but hey you know it's a story it's a science fiction story but it's it's great i mean that's the kind of thing that that harlan ellison is really known for is putting a twist on stories that you would never expect you know who would put an ending like that on the story? And it's not to shock. It's not to gross you out. And it's not to make you, you know, question your belief in humanity. In the context of these characters and the world that they live in, it's a completely believable choice. Because there is, in fact, no humanity to these characters, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons I thought that some of the misogynistic implications in people's posts and so forth was a little bit misplaced. Because I don't think that anyone had any affection for anybody in this story. No, no. There wasn't really any likable human beings. Vic is just roaming around with blood, trying to find some girls to actually rape. He's, uh, it's just stated as a matter of fact. It's not like he's an especially bad person. He just wants to find a girl and have sex with her and then go and get something to eat for his dog. Not necessarily another girl, but just some food <laughs> for his dog. I mean, that's the whole symbiotic relationship is mm-hmm. that the dog can't find his own food. He has to be with Vic and Vic can't find women. He has to be with the dog. Well, plus also the dog helps protect him from these, these screamer things mm-hmm. that are sort of maybe had been people affected by radiation. We don't know what they are exactly very creepy in the, in the graphic novel, but so there's that type of relationship. And the only real affection you see in the whole story or graphic novel and movie is this connection between the boy and his dog. Mm -hmm. And hence the title. It's a perfect title for that story. You know, it it really captures what it's about. And at the same time, it's a reference to um, a lot of books that were published in the United States, especially about, you know, boys and, and their dogs, very much a lassie kind of idea, right? You know, <laughs> the boy has his dog that his protector and they share this special bond and, and they do, but he's taken that and put it in this, you know, horrific future where, where nobody cares about each other anymore. And, and yet that's the thing that, that matters. It's the only thing that really matters in the whole story. I saw a very, 
twisted comparison to Butch and Sundance and about how that friendship and that relationship between those two men was the most important thing, that the girl was sort of just this plot element, or she really wasn't important. She was getting in the way of the relationship between mm. the two guys. So, And it is seen like Quilla is an element that might break up this relationship between mm-hmm. the boy and his dog. That's true. And to Vic's actually danger because if he winds up going off with her, which is a real key part of his decision to kill her, to feed her to his dog, <laughs> it sounds so great just saying it out loud, um, that he probably couldn't survive. I mean, he says it in the story that mm-hmm. he can't survive without the dog and the choice was one or the other. Right, exactly. Um, just to get back to Butch and Sundance for a minute, do you think they had a threesome? <laughs> I think they the did. Two- I think if she was smart, there would have been a threesome, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, given the two actors. Anyway, that yeah, was just... was a hottie back then. I know. That was an <laughs> <laughs> See, I just, I can't help thinking about this stuff. Anyway, um, no, that, so that's absolutely true, is that without blood, Vic would not survive. And there's a lot about that in the story, about how he really needs him, and how um, blood has saved his life on more than one occasion. In fact, um, I noticed that in... The story, Blood specifically, refers to a time when he saved Vic's life by um, alerting him to one of these screamer, ghoulie things. And in the graphic novel adaptation that we have, that's the first story that's in here, which is called Egg Sucker. (laughs) Which is, I had to think about that for a long time (laughs) as to what that could possibly refer to. Did you reach any conclusions about that? No, I didn't. I was kind of wondering. I mean, it seems like a a pretty all-purpose insult, but I don't know what it means. I thought it had some sort of reference to, I know that in German, balls are called eggs sometimes, oh. and you know how dogs with the licking, I yeah. thought maybe that might have something to do with it. Oh, that's, you know, that's a good point. Just a guess. So, Just a guess. So listeners, if anybody knows where that insult comes from, <laughs> write in and let us know, because we'd like to know about it. But yeah, so the, so the first story in here, which is kind of short, is about um, the time that blood saved Vic from a screamer. And yeah, this, I'm looking at the screamer, and it's really gross. It's like furry and green and ghoulish and... Yeah. <laughs> and in the movie, it's just sort of this green glow and mm-hmm. bad noise. I guess they just didn't have the special effects budget to, yeah. to show it. But it's bad. Very bad. Very bad. Um, so let's see. I had um, a couple of uh, tangential notes that I thought was important to um, talk about a little bit. Um, the first thing is that in the back of this book, there's a note from Harlan that says, uh, here's, here's some thoughts about this. And he says that all of the stories... A Boy and His Dog, Egg Sucker, and the last one, which is called Run, Spot, Run, are actually part of a much longer um, novel that he's been writing for like 25 years that's supposed to be called Bloods Are Over. And he says it's uh, a 100,000-word novel titled Bloods Are Over. And so I'm reading this, right? It says, as I write this afterwards, um, before the end of 1989, I will have the full novel completed. If the heavens don't part and swamp us, it will be published in 1990. So now it's 2005. (laughs) It hasn't been published. (laughs) Nobody knows when it's going to be published. I went to Harlan's website, and um, this is what it says. The final section, called Bloods Are Over, was written as a teleplay, interesting, for a two-hour movie some years ago, but the movie was never read. Harlan says, quote, I'll finish it when I fucking well get around to it. Uh, yeah, I read a little about about Harlan Ellison on the internet, and even his friends just call him a cantankerous old poop, basically, <laughs> in the politest the way of, of putting it. It's much harsher than that, actually. Mm-hmm. He's um he's not shy about his opinions on things. Mm-hmm. He'll disown anything that he writes that then is turned into mm-hmm. television or movie that he doesn't like. So his endorsement of this is actually a big deal. It's huge. It's, it's I think really it's one huge. of the few things he's actually endorsed. Mm-hmm. There's a great quote that I read 
that just really probably describes how he is about his opinions in general. He actually hates the term sci-fi. Mm-hmm. He says it sounds like crickets fucking, <laughs> which I found to be an interesting story. But he likes to consider his writing surrealist fantasy or magical realism. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything particularly magical about this, but I think it's definitely surreal. I, I agree. Um, one of the things about the story um, that I love is, I mean, so... Harlan is a master of language, you know, he's been writing forever. And there are so many passages in here where the language just kind of jumps off the page and he paints these amazing pictures of the landscapes Mm -hmm. and goes into great detail about, you know, these burned out buildings in the movie theater. It's just, you know, here's a master in command of his craft. And when you read it, you just go, wow, this writing is so good. Why don't other people write like this? It's you showing know? the general through this, really showing the general through this specific, Ugh. especially when he describes the down under of Topeka talking about the painted fences and yeah. the, um, he was describing what the people were doing. They dove into their communal mm-hmm. swimming pool. They chalked vegetable prices on a slate outside the grocery. They walked hand in hand with some of the ugliest chicks I've ever seen. And they bored the ass off of me inside a week. I was ready to scream. I could feel that tin can closing in on me. And it's great. I love how he has one sentence paragraphs. Yeah. Really hammers it home as to how Vic was going insane below ground. Yeah, it's great. Uh, one one thing about Harlan's writing that I always appreciate is that it's very cinematic, you know, it, like you read it and it is like a movie sometimes. Um, and here's a passage right at the beginning. I was thinking if, if you sat down to read this story and you didn't know anything about the author or what it was, if you read the first page, like how could you not read the rest of this? Um, here's the, the paragraph where uh, he asks... Vic asks Blood to see if there are any women around because he really wants to get laid. So um, it says, sullenly he started casting. So casting is the word that that they use to mean um, Blood is using his telepathic abilities to see what's going on. He sat down on the crumbled remains of the curb and his eyelids flickered and closed and his hairy body tensed. After a while, he settled forward on his front paws and scraped them forward till he was lying flat, his shaggy head on the outstretched paws. The tenseness left him, and he began trembling, almost the way he trembled just preparatory to scratching a flea. It went on that way for almost a quarter of an hour, and finally he rolled over and lay on his back, his naked belly toward the night sky, his front paws folded mantis-like, his hind legs extended and open. I'm sorry, he said. There's nothing. Like, can you not just see that? Yeah. It's amazing. Like, like, how could you read that and not have this instant picture in your mind of exactly what's going on in that scene? It's just great and coincidentally i had read that the now the artist on the graphic novel is richard corbin Mm -hmm. whose name is associated very often with um the heavy metal magazine Mm -hmm. as well as lovecraft illustrations and some edgar Allan poe book illustrations too Um, he had on his website a statement that said that he draws detailed um detailed storyboards like movie storyboards is how he sees things in his head so there's that very cinematic quality of that, too, although definitely Lovecraftian <laughs> and more than a little bizarre in, mm-hmm. in the renderings of this world, but very fitting the story. Yeah. Very, very fitting the tone of it. I agree. Um, one thing that I remembered when I was reading this, so um, if you ever read Heavy Metal Magazine, people out there, um, Den was the thing that Richard Corbin drew most often, and it was this... Um, fantasy series and it it was a guy this like nerdy guy who got transformed into this huge muscle man in this other world and he would have adventures where he had to kill people but a lot of it was erotic and the characters were often naked including Den who was like 
giant big muscle man with this huge penis, which Richard Corbin like took delight in drawing in every panel. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, most of the time when a guy is naked in a cartoon and they try and hide it, because I guess they don't want to freak out the fanboys because they'd have to see like a penis on the page. <laughs> but with Den, it was like, whoa, I remember being blown away by that as a teenager. Like, oh my God, <laughs> look at that thing. It was amazing. The best part about it, this is another tangent. So, you know, they made a movie of heavy metal that I saw in the theaters when it came out. And most of it was pretty bad, but the Den one was hilarious because John Candy did the voice of Den, and he did it as the nerdy guy voice through the whole thing. So, so you, you know, like this, this giant muscle man with this huge dick, and he's like, you know, going around <laughs> killing people with his sword, and you have John Candy doing his nerdiest voice. It is so funny. I just remember it must laughing. have been even more bizarre. I mean, it, uh, disturbing. That would have been extremely it disturbing. Was. I have never seen the movie, although I've been told that I should. You should see that part of the movie. That's the best part. <laughs> It was so funny. Anyway, um, so so um, yeah, um, and you know the other thing about this this book is that the coloring is beautiful. Oh, it's just like the book is so nice. It's printed on heavy stock, and the color is gorgeous. Now, let me ask you something. Did you notice that Quilajun's hair changes color? You know what? I didn't. I, I never noticed that <laughs> stuff. But no, but yeah, I see her blonde in this. Pa- oh yeah, I guess. So. And then it kind of goes brown, and then later on when they're down in Topeka, it's kind of red. Kind of red. Yeah, that just was a little bit of a... Unless they're trying to imply something with the color. Yeah, Yeah, very strong, deep, saturated colors throughout the book. Mm -hmm. Not as much realistic as as emotional to what's happening in the story. Um, So let's talk about the movie specifically for a little bit. Um, So there are some pretty significant plot changes from the story to the movie, which I I guess they needed to do because the story is only like 40 pages long and it probably would have made a 20 minute movie (laughs) if they had filmed it as, as written. Um, Most of the beginning part is the same, although there's a little more background on, um, the gangs and, and, you know, what they're doing and who's in charge. And there's a long sequence where um, Vic actually steals some food from another gang and that comes back to bite him in the ass later. Um, And when he goes down to Topeka, there's a pretty significant change in that um, Quilla June has her own plot, which is that she wants to be, uh, I don't know, king of Topeka or something. And she has brought him down there not because he's going to be part of this breeding program, but really she wants him to kill all the people who are in charge so that she can be in charge. There's this group of people called the committee, which are these very old, old farts. And an important thing, an important thing to mention is that visually these people look very freakish. They look kind of like a commune of mimes. They all have (laughs) white painted faces with drawn on smiles. So I guess the director felt like the down under wasn't, abhorrent or repellent enough Mm -hmm. in the story it's not necessarily i mean it's mentioned now in the story of course it's the first person so you're getting vic's impressions which are of course a little biased but and even in the um in the novel the people are certainly looking like they have some sort of denial going on and pretending that everything's back in the 1800s when in fact they're living underground in a big can but in the movie it's really clear that there's something distinctly wrong with this society and that no one would want to take this even as an alternative to being above ground Mm -hmm. that these people are very freakish looking they're all sort of sitting around pretending like everything's okay they're wearing these painted faces and these costumes there's that Fakakta marching band that keeps going (laughs) through the scene and the people with the, the fuzzy hats 
rights and everything. And it's a very bizarre, surreal situation that is then governed by this committee who can make anybody disappear. What They go to the farm, right, is what they say. Mm-hmm. Put her on the farm, and it actually means they're going to be killed if they don't comply with society. And there's no hint of that particular thing in either story or the graphic novel. Mm-hmm. So very scary. Yeah. So I I, I think the, the that kind of a subplot was maybe necessary to just keep things moving along in the story and and um, maybe you know I was kind of wondering whether they did that to make Quilla June less ambiguous as a character. Um, in the book, in the graphic, in the book, the story, in the graphic novel, it's not clear whether she's good or bad or or whatever. Um, she clearly lures him down to Topeka because they want her to, but. Um, it seems like she's crazy herself. It could, yeah, like she's ill, or she may be a little naive, but she's definitely, she tries to shoot her her mother and father <laughs> with great glee in mm-hmm. both the story and graphic novel. So clearly, there's, I mean, there's something wrong with her, but it's not this vindictive, manipulative, political thing that they made her have in the movie. Yeah. So perhaps it was just to make it a little more palatable to people that she was going to get, you know, killed and eaten. <laughs> yeah, I figured that too. In the yeah. end, yeah. So, you know, that's okay. It, I don't think that that goes against the grain of the story, and I don't think it diminishes um, the the point at the end that that he would do this thing. Yeah, I think these changes all highlight some of the stuff that's going in the story. I thought that if they had to do anything to the story and keep true to what the message was, that these were good, like, compliments to what was happening in the themes in the Mm -hmm. story. Although the android freaked me out for, I mean, years (laughs) afterward, that big guy in the farm wrap with the overalls, with the hat, and he was like an android that you was the enforcer who would kill anybody. Yeah. And and he he blowed up at the end. He blowed up real good. But apparently they have a whole warehouse full of these guys. <laughs> <laughs> um so this movie um so the movie stars a very very young Don Johnson in the mm. title role as Vic. Um it also stars Jason Robards as <laughs> the head of the townspeople wearing his mime makeup. And you know who else is in this movie and I don't know if you caught this I had to look at the credits but there's a guy who is a uh, Dr. Moore who's kind of his second in command like his right-hand man played by Alvy Moore who was a writer and producer. I think he also produced this film. Um he was uh Hank Kimball on Green Acres. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I see. He probably felt right at home in the clothing. Exactly. Then, and, uh, so every time I see him, all I can hear him saying is like, gee, Mr. Douglas. And <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Albie Moore, Hank Kimball in this movie. Um, and, and the rest of the actors, the main actors are people that I didn't recognize, but apparently they've been in other films. And then um, the rest of them, I think, were mostly extras from where they filmed this, like out in Barstow or wherever the heck, or Phoenix. Oh my gosh. Yeah, they're, and they're not professionals at all, but they, they do a good job, you know. It doesn't yeah, the look, acting yeah. was very respectable, including on Mr. Johnson's part. Yeah, so let's talk and about the dog, him. too. Oh, the dog was <laughs> wonderful. What a great dog. Great, but and I saw a comparison to the dog that the Brady Bunch owned, Tiger, which I don't remember what he looked like, but ah. he was sort of this scruffy, very friendly-looking dog. But it, the guy who did the voice was awesome. Yeah. He really did. You didn't ever catch yourself looking at the screen and going, Don Johnson was talking to himself, <laughs> or, or just not in the moment. It never took you out of the moment. Right. Um, the dog's voice, the guy that they got to do it is... Um uh, a guy named Tim McIntyre, and I looked him up on IMDb, and I didn't recognize anything else. I mean, he's been in tons of things, but I, I could like I couldn't look at his face and say, "Oh yeah, that's who he is." And his voice is very much um, like an older man's voice, a little bit flat, a little bit um, sarcastic. He has kind of an edge to it, which is nice, and very very expressive. And 
it's amazing how they managed to cut the sound together because it's clearly Don Johnson on location acting away, acting his little heart out. <laughs> and then the audio with Vic's voice is cut in to the, the soundtrack. And boy, it sure sounds like they're talking to each other. Yeah. It's, it's great. Um, so Don Johnson, 26 years old, incredibly beautiful face. Oh, man. Like, does he have cheekbones to die for or what? Yeah, and when the shirt's off, it's even better. I was more <laughs> noticing his chest and his face. But no, he, that was during his very beautiful young guy sort of phase, um, moving then into like the hard-edged vice cop in Miami mm-hmm. Vice. But yeah, very young. You were able to sympathize at least a little with this character who, for all intents and purposes, has no redeeming quality whatsoever mm-hmm. except for his loyalty to this dog. The first scene in the movie is, in fact, that there's some sort of skirmish going on in one of these holes where people tend to, to hole up. And he goes over after the people, there's gunfire, they run off. He sees a woman that after he goes down in this hole, splayed on a bed, and she's naked. And he's like, ah, well, you know, why'd they have to go and kill her? I could have used her a couple times. Mm-hmm. So clearly not a sympathetic character. I mean, not as bad as the more Waterworld type lead actor where you just hate him for two thirds of the movie. But at least there's something about his youth and how he looks still looking scruffy enough to be surviving in this environment, but you can at least sympathize a little bit mm-hmm, with him. Definitely. And, uh, yeah, so he looks great with his shirt off, completely hairless <laughs> chest, really nice. And I was also noticing there's one scene after he's gotten done um, fucking Quilla June for, like, the 50th time after they get it on in the little boiler room, and yeah. he's wearing a pair of, like, army pants with a drawstring, and they sit so low on his hips. Like, you can see his hip bones. You can tell he hasn't been eating a lot. He hasn't been getting a lot of acting gigs that's, at this point. That's right. But he looks he looks pretty fine, I have to say. And, and very and, different from Nash Bridges, where he got very big <laughs> and very sad. I mean, you know. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, and he is really good. You know, I think a lot of people think of him as like a hack TV actor. And he is very good in this movie. He, he's acting opposite a dog. Yeah, it's really tough. It's sort of the Mark Hamill Yoda thing. You know, you don't notice it's a puppet. So there's got to be some, me and my little Mark Hamill bandwagon, he's an actor, people, you know. But um, yeah, you don't notice all that sort of peripheral. If if you're drawn in by the actor, then there's some quality Mm -hmm. acting going on there. And it is surprising because sometimes he does phone it in in some of these other shows where he kind of plays himself. But it must be pretty hard to get. Well, I don't know if you're in the desert and you're being filmed in the desert and it probably was a low-budget movie. You probably don't have a lot to eat and you're a little hungry and angry all the time anyway. So he was perfect for this role. Yeah, he <laughs> was. And uh, he, he's really good opposite the dog. He's good with the, the actress who plays Quilla June. He's really funny when they finally go underground to Topeka and <laughs> he's kind of like being an asshole and people are slapping him around. And it's like, oh, clean your mouth up, boy, you know, telling him to stop cursing and everything. And when he first realizes what he thinks, in any case, is his responsibility down there, mm-hmm. which is to screw as many girls as he can. He does this happy little dance and jumps around. <laughs> little does he know, and this is different in the movie too, <laughs> mm-hmm. that the way that they intend to get his seed for all these women, because they can't, aren't able to have any boy babies down in the Down Under, uh, they actually hook him up to something that I saw referred to as a milking machine. <laughs> so he doesn't get to have any of the fun, they just get to take the product of his loins. Now, very different from the story in the graphic novel, where they really do intend to send him into rooms with these women so mm-hmm. he can have you know whatever fun he wants to have. Yeah, that and, that was interesting. You know, the role of sexuality is very interesting in this. I was I wanted to know what your take was. It's really, really strong in the story. Mm-hmm. The, 
very powerful sexuality. Is that something that is common? You've read more Harlan than I have. Yeah, it, it is. It runs through it. I think he, he recognizes that the need for sex as something that's really basic and that people will do a lot of stuff um, to, to make it happen. You know, people are willing to make enormous sacrifices just to get laid, you know. They'll lie and they'll steal and they'll and they'll cheat and they'll do all kinds of things just to satisfy that basic urge. And it's funny because it's like in the very beginning of this story, right? It's in the very first paragraph where he says, uh, or is it? Oh, right, it's the very first thing that, that Vic says. Come on, son of a bitch, I demanded. Find me a piece of ass. That's the first thing he <laughs> says in the story. And that is the the setting for it, that he's just, you know, looking to get laid, really. Now, he's not looking for love. He's not asking for a partner or a woman that he can share his life with or anything like that. He really just wants to get laid. And the picture that they paint is that in society, this is just impossible. There are no women who are able, there's no women above ground who aren't, what do you say, the stringy little pieces of ass that are just as soon to kill you as to look at you. And most of them have gone in these down-unders and are, are squirreled away or they've been killed or they've not survived the war. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a, a little description in, in the story and in the graphic novel about um, the fact that there are a lot of um, men with men now and it's not presented as <laughs> like evil or weird or any way. It, it's just, you know, there it is. Sort of a prison situation. Yeah, yeah. It, it happens. And, and even Vic says, you know, and uh, I haven't done that. Well, not for a long time. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> okay, we get it. Um, so I, I think the the sexuality in the... So, okay, the interesting thing in the story is that when he first gets Quilla June and he takes her into this abandoned um, YMCA, interestingly enough, mm-hmm. you know, Harlow's got such an eye for that kind of stuff, right? So the abandoned building they hide in is a YMCA. And then when they're in Topeka, where the committee has all their meetings, it's at the Better Business Bureau. that's just so good um so he takes her there and there's a so they're in this abandoned ymca and there's a big firefight because other people come and find them there and they're shooting and everything and she kills somebody um and then they pretend to set they set the place on fire so that the other um packs of people will think they're dead and then they fall asleep um and then when they wake up they're just sleeping there and she's naked and he's right next to her and so uh, he forces her to have sex the first time but very quickly it's her asking him for sex right so then you have to think okay like did he really rape her or did she really want it from him in the first place and you know it's very ambiguous it's not straight at all about you know what's happening and of course as you said we're only getting it from his point of view so we have no idea what she's thinking about this that was one of the things i enjoyed about the graphic novel is how the point of view switches it doesn't at any point switch to her but it switches then to blood so that you get to see the external view of Vic mm-hmm. from this parental, you know, because Vic, not only is Blood the, you know, the babe finder, he is the guy who's taught Vic how to read and also about history. So give him a little bit of advantage to the other solos, as they call them, the people that aren't part of these rover packs. And so he's sort of a father figure and you get to see what he thinks of, of Vic as a person mm-hmm. too. I always like when the perspective shifts so that you get a little bit more insight in the character. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, that that part of sexuality, you know, it, it's like the one place where sex happens and it seems to be a good thing, right? So 
before that, when we have Vic thinking about other times that he's actually found women, it's it's like he describes it as being pretty nasty and awful. And then <laughs> when they're in Topeka, you know, the, the elders, the committee are thinking about sex as like this necessary evil, this horrible, dirty, filthy thing that they have to do just to, to make babies. So the only time that it's ever kind of mutual and enjoyable is that little isolated moment when the two of them are in this boiler room and they both want it and there's nobody else around except for blood. There's a little hint of ref of a reference to some sort of incest there too in the story. Did you catch that between Quilla June and her father? Mm-hmm. When um when Vic is prepared to make his big escape and they'd have to lure <laughs> they lure in her father to the bedroom and startle him in a very interesting way, where Vic has her laying on the bed with her underwear off and her legs spread, mm-hmm. so that when he's in the doorway he pauses in shock. And Vic described it as when he saw his heart's desire, and then of course he whacks him in the head and kills him with a, a set of brass balls, which is also kind of <laughs> I love that, that uh, they're brass the, balls. <laughs> The sort of overtones, and then the enthusiasm with which with which uh, Quilladrine tries to kill her mother. There, there, clearly, something bad is happening in that family too. Yeah. If anything good can happen in the Down Under at all, yeah. So I I, I like the fact that um, sex and love are not presented in this story as the thing that's going to save Vic. You know, it's not going to change him from the person that he was. And, you know, sex isn't the answer that it makes everything better. And love isn't the answer between people that makes everything better. It, it is there and it can be something good, but it's not, you know, the romantic solution to a, a post-apocalyptic situation as it gets presented in movies sometimes, you know, like, well, you know, it could be after the nuclear holocaust, but if we fall in love, then everything will be okay. Right, yes. <laughs> no, make no mistake, uh, dear listeners, this is nothing if not a bleak story, mm-hmm. or at least a very disturbing story when you see, read, see it as a comic. it's um, It leaves you a little freaked out for a few days. At least I was a little freaked out after, yeah. after reading it and seeing it. But that's a good thing. You know, it makes you think. And look, we're getting a half an hour of discussion out of it, which I, I don't <laughs> think you could say for, like, I don't know, your typical John Updike story. Um, that's true. <laughs> Uh, let's see. There, there's a couple of funny things. One thing in in the story and in the in the novel, the graphic novel that I really liked, when you were talking about how he's really happy that he's going to get to sleep with all these girls, mm-hmm. it's portrayed exactly the same in both of them. Where he says, um, "Okay, I'll do this, but I want Quilla June first, and then I want to hit her on the head like she did to me, <laughs> because she knocked him unconscious to try and escape and get him to go to the down under." And then he says, "Well, let's get started. Line them up," and he unzips his jeans. <laughs> In the middle of this room full of old people, and they all go, ah! <laughs> that was some of the most amusing stuff to see in the movie, too, just how happy he is. Like, oh, this is paradise for him, at least in this particular really? way. That was hilarious. Um, in the movie, it, sort of during the same sequence, um, there's a scene of Don Johnson being scrubbed in a bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Which I was like, whoa, I can't believe it, you know, that there's some guy, like, giving him a big old scrubbing with this big scrub brush, and it's like, I can't believe it. And he's cursing him the whole time. Yeah, like, yeah. they want to get all the filth from the up above off of him. Oh, that was really amusing. <laughs> now, one of the things that I also thought was interesting in the graphic novel was you get, you, there's the, the frame that has, the, as I call it, the tear, where after... At the, towards the end of the story, after he's had to make this choice between blood and Quilla June, and he says that he's not going to eat anymore, or he's not going to eat from the food, you get to see that he's actually crying mm-hmm. in the graphic novel. The levels of remorse that you see between the story and the graphic novel and the movie very different. Yes. In the story, it's somewhat ambiguous. You do get to see that there's regret in 
in the graphic novel, maybe we can talk about the ending of the graphic yeah, novel yeah. being different at this point too. There's real, real remorse at what he's done. It's almost like he's awoken to what the possibility of being a real human being is. Mm-hmm. Um, so the last story in, so there are three stories in the graphic novel, the first one called egg sucker. The second one is a boy and his dog. And the third one is run spot run. And they're presented in chronological order. So run spot run is what happens just after actually, I think it's supposed to be like the next moments yeah. Right. Like right after they they walk away, that's what it looks because like. Because blood is still wounded. And right. They're trying to feed him stuff, and that's when blood eats the the fruit that gives him these hallucinations. Right. The food, whatever it is. Um. So they're walking, and um, since blood is telepathic, he's picking up on Vic's thoughts, and what he keeps seeing is the ghost of Quilla June, um, rising up in front of him, and keeps imagining her killing him. Um, and he realizes that it's Vic who's pissed off at him because he had to kill Quilla June. And Vic is starting to hate him in a way that he never did before. This happens a couple of times where Blood's hallucinating this really kind of creepy looking ghost. Um, sometimes it really looks like her and other times she looks like a ghoul. Like she doesn't really have eyes and her, parts of her are falling off and mm. like that. Um, so this happens for about what, like half the story. And then, mm-hmm. uh, something else happens. There's plot and, uh, <laughs> well, well you know, there's a plot that comes in here and, and this guy, um, Fellini, who's actually in the movie more than he is in the original story. Who's like, he's a, the guy that Vic steals the food from, right? right? Which isn't, it's like, not in the story at all. No. The Fellini character, it's just, it's like, just they just mention him as yeah. like he's one of the warlords of this city. So he comes up and um, the they're all pissed. They know who Vic is. They're pissed at him because he had like stolen food and did some other things. So he has to go hide in the woods and uh, blood tries to guide him to a safe place. And he ends up hiding inside this hollow tree stump, which seems like a safe place until the last couple of pages when it turns out that there are these enormous, creepy looking spiders these are really scary spiders. These are like the spider. Yeah. These are like the she- Lord of the Rings. Lord spiders. of the Rings, exactly. They're Shelob. They're yep. Shelob. Big ones. Oh, really? I, I still can't watch that scene. Ugh. They're they're not friendly spiders. They're they're very hungry spiders. Yeah. Too. <laughs> so um, they're giant sized, and uh, they're building this web around where Vic is now. Tell me if you got this or not. I wasn't sure whether the spiders had already bitten him, or whether he just kind of put himself into this trance while he was hiding in the stump. What do you think? I think that he saw this as his punishment, and he was allowing himself to be killed. Ah, okay. Because he could have gotten away. I mean, Blood is running up to the stump saying, Vic, get out of there, get out of there. They had, they still had some time. And then this other spider comes down, and, and uh, oh, the, here's the panel. He was off in that hellish place where the ghosts of dinners, where, where the ghosts of <laughs> dinners in blue dresses hobbled across the landscape. So he was already at a point where almost comatose in his remorse or I mean that's how I read it in yeah. any case and then the spider comes down and winds him up and and that's about all there is to say about that <laughs> yeah and that's the way it ends and blood just runs away and and he says you know I didn't have I was never again troubled by the ghosts of little girls in shredded frilly blue dresses and that's like you don't know what happens he just runs away um, this, there's this one panel where you were just reading from, I think is really interestingly drawn because it looks like the vegetation is, um, growing on him, on Vic. Yeah. All, all that's, you can see of him is his face, which is half in shadow and there are leaves around him, which, um, blood had kind of kicked up to hide him a little bit, but it really looks like, um, he's being absorbed into the landscape, which is also very creepy in and of itself. Yeah. But I was surprised by this additional ending because I hadn't thought that there was more to the story mm-hmm. 
and I'm guessing that if there if there were anything past this, it would be the continuing adventures of blood, maybe. But I, I, I think that's, I don't know how it could be because the relationship between him and Vic is really the crux of the story. Yeah, I, I at least don't the know. most enjoyable part. So I, I think that reading that really changed the way I thought about the story originally because. I, I didn't get the impression at the end that he was so shaken up by what he had done because, like you were saying, he's presented throughout the whole story as this pretty amoral character who will do just about anything to survive. And even though he had this good experience with Quilla June and she kept saying, do you love me? And he kept saying, yeah, I love you. You get the impression he was saying that just because he didn't really know, like, right. you know, whether he loved her or not. So he was just saying it. And it seems like... Um, like you were saying, this was a life-changing experience for him. And at the end of the original story, that's not really there or it's extremely shaded. You know, you would have yeah, to read the last three, it. right. The three paragraphs at the end is, is clearly where um, Vic is saying we had to move slow because blood was still limping. It took a long time before I stopped hearing her calling in my head, asking me, asking me, do you know what love is? Sure. I know a boy loves his dog. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit less ambiguous about, him having any kind of remorse on the story. Um, it still is a little bit, you're not sure. He, he clearly is not happy, happy with what he had to do, but his loyalty to blood mm-hmm. is still really strongly there at the end of the short story. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's neat. Um, I haven't hardly seen anything else about this. Like the, the last piece that is the, the run spot run, you know, I haven't seen people talking about it on the internet and saying whether they liked it or what they thought it meant or anything, or even haven't seen anything about what Harlan says about it or means about it so i think it's completely open to interpretation at this point but it sure is good um and i really like having these three different versions to kind of hold up next to each other and compare them um seeing where the similarities are and where the differences are i uh i watched the movie with the director's commentary on i don't know if you did that or not oh i didn't have the chance i was wondering what he was saying It, it was good um the guy who directed it lq jones is like um, he's been in movies for a long time. He's, he's been in Sam Peckinpah movies. He was like a regular for Peckinpah um, in the Wild Bunch and stuff. Um, and he, this movie was really a labor of love for him. He worked on the script for two years. He ended up having to write the actual script to the movie because Harlan couldn't get it together to write it. Just like could not do it. And they waited and said, okay, I'm doing this now because you're not. Just like a writer. Just like a writer. Couldn't do it. Got it together. Wrote the script and, and you know, made it on a pretty low budget. And um, just it, you could tell by the way he talked about it that he really had put a tremendous amount of thought and planning and love into filming this weird little story and trying to make it true to what the author's vision were. And, and uh, as you said, you know, Harlan put his stamp of approval on it, which is really rare. I have to think that the graphic novel, too, is, would, I mean, he also put a stamp of approval on that, too. And I think it's a very true representation of the short story. So if you don't get to read the short story, which you should, um, you should at least take a look at the graphic novel for a, a tale of bizarre, kinky <laughs> survival. It's it's called A Rather Kinky Tale of Survival. It's a tagline of the movie. It's yeah. just love movie taglines. But it really does give you the spirit, plus a little bit of extra ending of the story that the, was written. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to put links in on the blog for people who want to check this out. Um, 
the original short story was published in um, some English magazine back in 69. The version I have is in The Beast That Shouted Love at the Heart of the World. And you could probably get this um, either on Evil Amazon or through Powell's or some other used bookstore in, in the paperback. And it's a great paperback, by the way. Um, it has lots of other really, really good stories in it, including some really funny things and some really scary things. Uh, so if you haven't read any Ellison, this would be a good introduction. And then the graphic novel actually bought from Harlan Ellison's um, company where he sells a lot of his stuff. But again, you could find it online somewhere. And I think it cost like eight or nine bucks or something. Because I ordered it from Harlan, it came autographed, which I'm very happy about. <laughs> so that was kind of neat. And um, the DVD is out, what, like this year or last year or something? It's really Pretty new. recently, yeah. Yeah, and it's a nice DVD. You know, it's got some extra features. It has the commentary. Um, it has some trailers that came out at the time. So it's And the print is great. It's in a beautiful widescreen edition. It looks really clean. The sound is yeah. good. They did a, a really nice job packaging it. And a beautiful picture of a nuclear bomb going off on the cover, <laughs> just to give you the feel. <laughs> um, I also wanted to point out, if you look this movie up in IMDb, it had uh, a couple of alternate titles. <laughs> one of them, one of them, which is... <laughs> so, okay, it's called A Boy and His Dog, alternate title, A Psycho Boy and His Killer Dog. <laughs> Which I'm glad that they didn't go with. Uh, me too. I just, I was like, wow, that's really amazing. A psycho boy and his killer dog. <laughs> A rather kinky tale of the world. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, and also, I noticed in looking at the credits at the end that um, Ray Manzarek of The Doors did some of the music for this as well. Because apparently he was friends with one of the guys and, and just was like, sure, I'll come play on your soundtrack album. So there's a rather happy little anthem too. Song That's right. Boy and his dog, nice little folksy song that'll put you in the mood <laughs> <laughs> for post-apocalyptic for... fun and sex. Exactly. <laughs> it's a happy romp. It is. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I'm looking at the cover of this right now and yeah, it has that nice nuclear explosion. And um, yeah, so yeah. this genre is drama, sci-fi and thriller. They're putting it into all three categories. They really should have something that's called post-apocalyptic because, I mean, then you know where to go for Planet of the Apes and Mad Max and Lord of the Flies. All that stuff belongs. That slipstream, all this stuff belongs in this particular genre, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, so... um if you, the listening audience, have opinions about this, if you have... Oh, oh, oh wait, I forgot. We, we should just talk about one thing and, and why we each think that this is not misogynistic, because I don't think it's misogynistic. Because mm. um, really, that seems to be the thing that people glom onto about it, because at the end of the story, a boy kills a girl and feeds her to his dog. And on the surface, you could really take that as, I hate women. And, and we should all hate women and women are evil and should be killed and fed to dogs. I mean, you know, there are people who will take that literally and think, yeah, this is what the author meant by it. But I, I don't think that women in this story are portrayed any differently than the men in this story. As you said, you know, they're all pretty soulless and um, not caring about anything. They're not even like human beings. You know, she she lures him down to this underground place to Topeka because her her father asked him to. But the reason that he goes down there in the first place is because he wants to get revenge for her hitting him on the head and knocking him out. Right. You know, it's not because he wants to be with her or save her or anything else. He just keeps saying, I want to go down there and, and like hit her on the head. <laughs> well, I mean, if women are treated as objects... The men are also treated as objects. Yeah. They're all soulless and twisted, and there is no emotion between any of the characters, really, again, except for Vic and Blood. Mm -hmm. But when you read the story, it is 
it is harsh in how Vic mm-hmm. looks at women there. Just objects are just there to be raped and smacked over the head if they give them any lip. And of course they liked it. But it's a, it's a sort of, it's an ill point of view. But I think the whole story is supposed to be from that completely dysfunctional, broken down, no semblance of society point of view. Yeah, I mean, what you have to imagine, if that really were the way the world ended up in 20 years, it's that's not unrealistic. That's pretty much what it would be like if there weren't a lot of women around and there was no infrastructure and men were just kind of, boys were just roaming around and had to, you know, kill other people for food. That's way, the way it would be. <laughs> the, the one that represents society most is the animal and the people are animals yeah, instead. Yeah. So it's, I, I don't think it's, it's any point at all about how the author feels about women. It's the point of society that, you know, we're just one step away from degenerating into that. It could happen so easily and that's the way women would get treated if there, there weren't that many of them. And, and I think it's that's a, true. It's a very post-war, I mean, a post-cold, or actually middle of the cold of the Cold War was written in the late 60s. I mean, it's very strong in that point Mm -hmm. of view. And yeah, it's supposed to be disturbing, supposed to show that people will then become things that are more horrible than can possibly be imagined. So not really as misogynistic as it is misanthropic. You know, people hate each other. There's no love between human Mm -hmm. beings. But yeah, kind of harsh if you're not into so much with the violence and the shooting and and stuff like that. Yeah. So the story more so than the movie. The movie is, though it's violent, is, you know, not as graphic in some ways as the story yeah there's a lot of shooting but you don't actually see people getting like blown up and you know there's not a lot of blood flying around yeah so it's not like you have to look away from the screen kind of violence no no i mean i'm a huge baby i wouldn't have been able to watch that (laughs) except for the spider but there's no spider spider i had to look away from the graphic novel because of the spider that's all um anyway so as i was saying if if you out there have opinions about this if you've read the story or seen the movie and um you you beg to differ or you just want to contribute we would love to hear from you to hear what you have to say about it um I'm wondering if Harlan's ever going to get around to, to publishing the big old novel, because that sure would be nice. But, you know, he's supposed to have had out the last Dangerous Visions book for since, you know, 65 or 66 or whenever he was supposed to be editing that. So I'm sure if you asked him, he'd said he'd get around to it when he damn well pleases. Yeah, so. uh, he's got yeah. a lot of other things. Um, I will take this opportunity to, to tell the story that I actually met him once at a book signing. Oh, really? um, he was here in San Francisco. This is like 15 years ago, I guess, when I first moved here. And um, he has done a number of appearances. He doesn't do them anymore, I don't think. But he would go to a bookstore and he would sit in the window of the bookstore and write a story that day with his wow. ma- with his manual typewriter because he writes on a manual typewriter. <sighs> Unimaginable. Yeah. So he would just show up at like, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning. He would sit in the window and he would write and take little breaks and talk to people and stuff. And then at the end of the day, there was a book signing and he would read the story and you could go up and talk to him and he would do his shtick. You know, he does, has like this stand-up comedy routine, which is pretty good. So I went to see him and he read the story, which was just, it was a wonderful story. I was trying to remember what it was called. He's published it since then. Um, and it was a story about a guy whose television turns into a vampire. and it's a really really clever story and the best part it was i got there just when he was just finishing the story like he was making a few corrections and he needed a name for the main character and uh so he was looking at this little bookstore in san francisco is packed with like you know 150 people were all standing really close and he's like a name a name i need a name and this guy in the audience right up at the front says oh my name is i think his name was chris and he said what his last name was and harlan was like perfect that's a perfect name and that ended up being the name of the character like this random 
one guy in the audience. <laughs> so he read the story and it was great. And he talked for a while and then people got to go up and get their books autographed. And I was terrified because, you know, I, I was being all fangirl like, oh, he's such a good author and I love him so much. And, and I had heard, you know, that he was a bastard and could be a son <laughs> of a bitch to people. And, and in fact, has been known at book signings if there's a certain edition of a book that um, – he never got paid for it. There was some dispute over it, and, and it is said in legend that if you come up with that edition of the book, he'll rip it up, and he won't sign it, and like hand you back the pieces. So I was really hoping that that wouldn't happen to me. And I had my edition of um, Dangerous Visions that was a, a hardcover that had been... Um, passed down to me by my brother and I took it up to him and I, I kind of slid it across the desk and he looked at me and he signed his name in it and we chatted for a few minutes and he was really nice and I just kind of slunk away thinking I'm so happy he didn't insult me <laughs> or rip up your book <laughs> or rip up my book or, or do anything <laughs> like that and and he was very very sweet and you know that's like the other side of him now that he's an old guy he's like this sweet little old Jewish man he says he shuffles around the house in his bathrobe and slippers and you know you can totally see that that's his other side aside from being like the cantankerous son of a bitch part so he's gotten all mellow and the one thing that he hasn't gotten mellow about is how litigious he is and protective of his work i read the story about him suing not only the guy on aol who Mm -hmm. posted two of his short stories but then also suing aol yeah and he won (laughs) yeah he won so don't look for this stuff online guys you're not going to find it yeah i would i'd strongly advise you to purchase it from um harlan himself if you go i'll put the link up to um a site that's his site, it's not run by him, but it's run by people in conjunction with him. And um, you can buy stuff directly from his company, which is called the Kilimanjaro Company. And they have um, really good things like stuff you can normally find, but also limited editions. And he signs most of the stuff that they send out. So it's a nice way to get something um, either personalized or, or just signed if you're into that sort of thing. Huh, have we said everything that we needed to say? Again, a rather kinky tale of survival. I just love that tagline so much. So many lame taglines out there. That one's just great. Oh, that's so funny. Okay, well, God, we've been talking for like an hour. So this is a super duper extended edition. There was just so much we had to say. Um, Thank you all very much for listening. Thank you, Catherine, for doing this show with me. This was really fun. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I think we'll have to do this again. Maybe when Spider-Man 3 comes out or... Um, oh, very exciting. Yeah, or before that. <laughs> we'll, we'll find something else before that that we can both read and talk about because I think this is a, a good way to, you know, get at the bottom of certain things. Um, so to listening audience out there, thank you very much. Um, the next one that I put up, um, the show, might be my Why the Last Man rant. I haven't gotten around to recording that yet because I've been sick, but I need to do that really soon. And then, then it'll be back to normal. So uh, I think we're going to sign off now and listen to some of that um, beautiful music by my friend Ginger Mayers.